Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Welcome to Independent Women's Forum podcast. I'm Inez Stepman, Senior Policy Analyst with IWS. And today we're going to be talking about the dramatic confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court with Erin Hawley. Erin is an Associate Professor at Law at the University of Missouri, where she teaches constitutional litigation, tax law, and agricultural law, as well as uh, being a legal fellow here with us at the Independent Women's Forum. Welcome, Erin. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Inez. I'm glad to be here. Um, so these Kavanaugh hearings, um, we had protesters dressed in handmade off, uh, handmade tail outfits, white supremacy accusations for um, White House aides for doing hand symbols. Um, Cory Booker claimed his his role as Spartacus. Um, we had arrests, interruptions, yeah. even among the legislators themselves, the senators themselves. Is this going to be the new normal going forward for confirmation hearings? Oh, I sure hope not. I think if we look at past confirmation hearings, um, while they certainly have been intense and generated a lot of public scrutiny, um, most of those hearings were still, um, you know, conducted with decorum by the Senate um, and the Senate staffers. And I think you have uh, an unusual um, sort of level of um, vitriol um, amongst the senators, something that we haven't seen before. Um, we haven't seen interruptions uh, in the way that we saw this uh, time around. And um, I hope it's not a new normal. Um, I hope that um, both parties can kind of step back and particularly the Democrats were for interrupting um, the chairman um, and just sort of follow the procedure. And I think if if those procedures are followed, then that gives the American public uh, a much better chance to learn about the nominee, to learn about the important issues, to learn about the judicial philosophy uh, of a nominee rather than just sort of the three-room circus uh, that you mentioned. So let's get to some of that substance since we are not senators at a confirmation hearing uh, <laughs> and we have the chance to actually get to some of those those important things like judicial philosophy, like uh, some of the key legal issues at heart here. Um and some of the most heated topics. So the left seems to be absolutely certain that Roe v. Wade will be overturned the moment that Kavanaugh's rear end touches that seat on the high court. Um, others are pointing out that's probably unlikely. If, if anything, we're likely to see a narrowing of, of Doe and Casey, which are, are other abortion precedents. Could you kind of talk us through that structure and then um, where you think it's most likely to go? What do you think Kavanaugh's presence on this court is going to do to that line of cases? Sure. Well, to begin with, um, I, I think we need to, to talk a bit about sort of the confirmation process itself and how a nominee um, is sort of obligated to answer questions. So the judicial canons of ethics forbid a nominee from sort of promising how he or she might rule on a particular case. Um, so it's been standard practice actually since Justice Ginsburg was nominated in the 1990s uh, for nominees to sort of step back from answering any particular question as to how they might come out on a case. So sometimes you'll see the media saying, you know, he didn't really answer our questions or, you know, what about this case? A senator might ask, and how would you rule on that? Um, and it's very appropriate, even incumbent uh, on a nominee to step back and say, you know, I can tell you how I would approach the issue. I can tell you about my judicial philosophy, but I am obligated not to tell or indicate how I might rule on a future case because that would compromise my impartiality. Um, so Judge Kavanaugh was entirely correct um, not to indicate 
um, how he might rule um, on a challenge uh, to the road decision. Um, instead, uh, he indicated, as have uh, prior nominees, how he would approach the decision. Um, and he would approach the decision, he said, by uh, giving the precedent um, sort of its, its stare decisis weight. And what that means is that he would recognize that Roe and Casey are decisions of the court, and Casey is sort of a, a precedent on a precedent. Um, so some people would call that a super precedent. Um, but that doesn't mean it's set in stone. And so as a uh, justice, he would be obligated um, to look at a challenge and to sort of walk through the stare decisis factors and to see whether people have relied on that decision, um, to see whether um, the decision has proven workable in practice. Um, and then also to consider, you know, whether this decision was correct when it was decided. Um, something interesting about these constitutional decisions is that the Congress can't change it. So if the Supreme Court got it wrong in 1950, um, you know, there's a reason that the court might want to correct it. Now, the, on the other hand, you have uh, sort of the reliance factors um, and those sorts of things. So in any case, um, not just Roe, but in any constitutional case, the court's going to think about whether it was right, whether it was wrong. They're going to think about whether people have relied on this decision, uh, and they're going to think about um, sort of the workability of the precedent. Uh, and, and do you think that we're more likely to see, and I know I'm asking you to, to predict the future, and that, that's, that's really difficult, but given Kavanaugh's record, um, do you think we're likely to see something dramatic, like an overturn of cases, or do you think that we're more likely to see kind of a chipping away, um, a little bit more narrow uh, reading of, for example, Casey, maybe a little more power for the states to regulate abortion in the second and third trimesters? I mean, do you think this is going to be a dramatic shift, um, or do you think this is going to be something that is going to be chipped away at perhaps over time, over years, or even a decade? You know, that, that's tough to predict. And I think you could, there's sort of two different models um, that you can look at to see how the court has dealt with past precedents. Um, and a very recent one was in the labor unions case. And the court decided in Abood in the 1970s uh, that public sector unions were okay. And what that means is that um, you could work for a state government and be required to join the union um, um, or, or that there could only be one union. So, so there could be a union um, in your place of employment. Um, and even if you chose not to join, I should say, uh, you were still required to pay some of the union dues to sort of support collective bargaining activities. Um, so that was in the 1970s in a case called Abood. Um, and just this term in a case called Janus, um, the Supreme Court went through the stare decisis principles and said, as a matter of First Amendment law, this isn't correct. Um, we can't compel an individual um, to support speech, uh, to pay for speech, which, which they disagree. It hasn't proven practical. Um, and the reliance interests, unions may have relied somewhat, but there's still evidence that they can thrive um, without this mandatory um, sort of payment of dues issue. Um, so in the Janus case, the court sort of did away with the precedent whole hog, and they said, we're going to overrule Abood. Um, that's no longer the law. Um, on the other hand, if you look at sort of the campaign finance uh, line of cases, you'll see much more incremental moves um, by the court um, in looking at, you know, where uh, at prior precedents and then limiting those precedents um, and doing that typically in sort of incremental ways. Um, so I can't really say, I speak to Judge Kavanaugh on his views either on, on you know, whether he would uh, or would not um, chip back, uh, chip away at or overrule Roe. Um, but I think those are the two sort of frameworks um, that we might be dealing with. Sure. The, the um, 
the overall framework or, or the maybe slower uh, over a series of cases uh, kind of make, make a, a uh, anchor precedent less important over time. Uh, that's interesting. Anyway, so I guess one more topic um, that maybe is not quite in the headlines as much, but as, as a Philip Hamburger fan, and I really encourage all of our listeners to go read Philip Hamburger. He's awesome. Um, I'm going to have to ask this is, is, do you think this, this confirmation is a, or assuming that it happens, um, how, how sort of deadly is this for Chevron precedent? And for our listeners, that's, that's where the courts, uh, it's a case where the courts largely gave up judicial review over interpreting the statutes that enable the executive agencies, the alphabet soup agencies, the EPA, you know, various other um, sort of fourth branch of government um, executive agencies and made, made courts defer to bureaucrats sort of as a matter of course in terms of how they interpret the laws that they are writing regulations under. Um, I mean, Scalia famously seemed to be having some doubts after being a strong supporter of Chevron early on, um, seemed to be having some doubts about Chevron. Um, we know Thomas mm-hmm. has deep doubts about Chevron. We know that Gorsuch um, famously has deep doubts about Chevron and the power of executive agencies. Um, what's Kavanaugh's record like to the extent that he has one um, on on deference to executive agencies? You know, um, Judge Kavanaugh has been described as being sort of a skeptic of regulation. He comes up from the D.C. Circuit, um, which is the circuit that gets more of the regular sort of regulatory sort of cases in any circuit in the country, um, because of course most of the agencies are located there in D.C. Uh, so the D.C. Circuit sees a ton uh, of these agency cases, and so Judge Kavanaugh has had a um, ample opportunity to sort of see the agencies at work. And it's just as you described um, under the Chevron precedent. Uh, if an agency um, is implementing a statute that's passed by Congress, then the agency gets to say in its regulation what that statute means. And the court doesn't get to say that that's not the best interpretation, um, so long as the interpretation is even permissible or, or makes any sense at all, then the court is required to defer to that. Um, so, so really see a lot of power, a lot of actually lawmaking power, um, as well as interpretive power uh, in the hands of these bureaucratic agencies, rather than with either the elected branches in making the law or with the court. Uh, in interpreting that law. Um, so Judge Kavanaugh has been described as skeptical, and I think that is fair of his record. He's overturned, I think it's 40 agency decisions. Um, and um, in his confirmation hearing, he was clear that he's not, uh, he said, a, a skeptic of regulation in general. Um, however, he said, I'm a skeptic of unauthorized regulation, of illegal regulation, and of regulation that is outside the bounds of what the laws passed by Congress have said. Um, and I think that's a really good place to start. And I think if you look at that last phrase, outside the bounds of what the laws passed by Congress have said, I would guess that Judge Kavanaugh is going to think the judiciary is in the best place to determine what Congress has said and then weigh the regulation uh, against uh, that court interpretation, uh, which would, in effect, overrule Chevron. So I guess now, as we wrap it up, I'd like to, to get to perhaps the political question. There's been so much sound and fury around this confirmation. But um, Lindsey Graham is on the record as predicting a comfortable ca- uh, confirmation for Kavanaugh, as many as 55 votes that would include some Democrats, as well as John Kyle being back in the Senate, thanks to the juicy appointment out in Arizona. Um, 
do the protesters and, and interrupters actually have a chance to stop this this uh, confirmation or, or is this kind of a, a done deal and this is all a dog and pony show for uh, for bases back home, for her constituencies back home, for uh, video clips for, for senators to send out to their constituents? Well, I think if you look at the, the hearing, it definitely was about video clips. I think there were a number of um, Democratic presidential um, potential contenders in 2020 that were definitely uh, looking for the video clip. Um, so, so that is certainly true. Um, as far as uh, how senators might vote, I think um, that you will see a fairly uh, party line vote. Um, I think everyone um, recognizes that, that this judge is eminently qualified. Um, and then the question is whether um, you, know, you have the potential, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, those sorts of folks, how uh, will they vote? Um, but I would think that um, you're going to get maybe 55, as many as 57, probably around 55 votes um, based on the Republican senators, um, as well as Democrats who are in um, states uh, that tend to be um, to lean Republican and whose constituents would tend to support a justice um, who uh, sort of abides uh, by a constitutional vision uh, of the of the judiciary as a limited one rather than a more robust role for that court. Great. Thank you for getting us up to speed, Erin. Um, you're listening once again to No. 7 for Independent Women's Forum podcast. I've been chatting with Erin Hawley, who is an associate professor at law at the University of Missouri and a legal fellow with us here at IWF. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.